This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Ali. Ali, powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Ali, a membership-only community workspace for creators. Each location is a community curated powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Ali, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems for entrepreneurs. And now, on to my interview with Lucia Disrespinus. Learn to do something that's needed in this world. Learn to do it very well. Learn to do it the best that you can, and then even the best isn't good enough. And hang on to that. Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music, let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study they moves, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. <laughs> Welcome to the Silent Giants Podcast, a podcast that highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at, at Silent Giants Podcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at, at Corey Cambridge. This week's special guest is industrial and graphic designer Lucia Desrespinus. Lucia is one of the most accomplished individuals in the world of industrial design, but struck unexpected gold when she created the iconic logo for Dunkin' Donuts. Her work in industrial design is displayed at MoMA here in NYC. And she is currently a professor at Brooklyn's prestigious Pratt Institute. In this interview, she invited me to her Manhattan apartment to chat about her early life, attending Pratt in 1949 as the first female to graduate in industrial design, the makings of that famous Dunkin' Donuts logo, and we have a conversation of the heart about life, race, and the world we live in. She's one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met, and it's an honor to share her story. So without further ado, let me introduce you to the industrial and graphic designer, fierce trailblazer, my friend, the silent giant, Lucia Disrespinus. Okay, anyway, you know, yeah. let me get a sound check from you. Okay. Okay. Say your name, where you're from. Lucia and Disrespinus. Sound I'm good. from nowhere. <laughs> Are you from New York? Uh, I'm from hunger. <laughs> no, we used to say that, but that's awful to say now. People are very sensitive. And if, if my daughter were here, she'd say, oh, you, you can't say something like that. Uh, from it, hunger, you know what that means. No. Oh. What's it mean? It's awful. When people were less sensitive, you just, it, it means that that you sold your body and you got pregnant and that you were the result of that. Mm. You see? Okay, so, so like, somebody a, like says, a product of prostitution. Product of prostitution got or it. hunger. Oh, and that's awful to say. But at some point, I don't know, it was, it was different. Nobody took it that way. You see, we didn't think deeply enough. Mm. That was the problem. I mean, years ago... Uh, back in the 40s, for instance, in high school and the like, people didn't think very deeply about things or how things uh, appeared or 
how they affected other people. You know, I remember when I was in uh, grade school, because uh, we moved every three years. I was born in, in, in Ohio, Cleveland, and three years later, my, my mother and father were born in New York. Okay. So I returned to the, to the site of the... The motherland. Uh, the motherland, <laughs> yeah. Ye who drink the, the, the waters of the Nile shall always return. <laughs> so I returned to drinking the waters of, uh, of the Hudson. Uh, Hudson River. <laughs> but what was it like growing up for you? Because uh, you, you went from Ohio. Every three years. Every three years we moved because my father was with AMP. He was back to was with Bohack. And then my mother, uh, who was the head of the... She was the youngest office manager they had ever had, and she was Bohack's office manager. Bohack was like AMP, but small in New York City. There used to be a Bohack at the corner here when we when when we first moved in. Okay. Uh, and uh, Daddy was the head of the advertising department. So when they met, they got married, and then. Daddy had a an offer from AMP, so he went with them, and then they shipped him to Ohio a year after they were married. <clears throat> so uh, and that's where I eventually was born, and we were there for three years, and I was born after they were there for about a year, I guess. Then he was transferred to Pittsburgh, so then I was going to kindergarten in Pittsburgh. And uh, we lived in East Liberty, uh, which was really in the city. It was a part of the city. And that was back in uh, 1931, I guess, or so. Okay. Uh, yeah, about 1931. Do you have any siblings? No, no. I'm an only child. Okay, so then we moved to from, from Cleveland when I was a baby. Pittsburgh, and I remember throwing up in kindergarten, and they made it made me clean it up myself. And my mother was furious, so we were going to move again anyway. So she took me out of kindergarten because she was so angry. And um, then we moved to back to Cleveland to Shaker Heights, so we could afford better rent because they never bought houses for people in those days. It was always you rented. So we moved back to Shaker Heights in Cleveland, and then we were there for three years. And then uh, I had very reddish hair. Incidentally, I've never done anything to my hair. There's no color here or anything. I've just never turned gray, and I can't figure it out. It's called blessings. It's so weird. <laughs> it's so weird. It just went, I lost the red, and then it went from blonde to darker, and then it's gotten lighter. And and there's no gray, and I can't figure it, but I just live well, with whatever I've got. Well, I, I have no Nature gray, too. Nature knows best. But I just have no hair. You don't have any <laughs> hair under there? Oh, that's why, that's why I keep a mean hat game. No, but I've, I've, lost, I've lost hair. I used to have a big bun in the back, and it's gone. You got more hair than me. That's for sure. Well, yeah, but I'm a woman. I better have more hair. I, I know somebody that's almost bald and they're wearing a wig and it's awful for them. It's tough for women. I think everybody should just 
shave their heads. Yeah. Okay. It would be beautiful. <laughs> it would be. I agree. There's a woman in the building. She is black. She has this gorgeous facial structure. She has hair that long all over her head. She looks beautiful. If I did that, I'd look horrible unless everybody else was doing it, you see. Then I could get away with it. That's called equality right but there. Some people, some people have a head and a face that they can do that. And there are some, there are some white people too who can do that. Uh, but they have to have a certain kind of head and face. But if everybody's doing it, then you can get away with it. There we go. <laughs> so. uh, one of the things that I like to ask on the show, my favorite question is, uh, what do your parents do? Because I'm a firm believer that we are just a product of yeah. these two different worlds, um, the positive and the negative. And yeah. we find that, you know, I've interviewed people, you know, like yourself or, you know, Michael Jackson's engineer, the man who recorded Thriller, yeah. or the um, director of Beat It, or anyone who's worked on, who's uh, accomplished greatness, they yeah. typically have those same ties to their parents. Uh, like, what yeah. role did your, your, your father in advertising play a role in, in your career? Well, he went from advertising to be really uh, one of a, a, a vice president of AMP. Daddy, being all German, <laughs> loved wood. And when he'd come home at night, we had a baby grand piano, a Kronikenbach. I can remember seeing Kronikenbach. They were the precursors to uh, Steinway, in fact. And, um, and he'd be making something of wood because he would make me a, a, a corner cabinet in, in, uh, in the house. In, to the attic, there was a stairway that went up and then broke and went up that way. And he made a corner cabinet for that, for all my, all my uh, stuffed animals. Mm -hmm. And it was a high one, you know? Um, and then he would build things just because he loved to build stuff. So then I was down there, I would be his assistant. He'd say, you're my assistant. So hand me the nails, hand me the hammer, hand me the saw. And then when he died, of course, I just kept going down the cellar and building stuff. Uh, he didn't have any, any, he didn't have a saw that was run by a motor. Everything I did was, you know, if I by wanted hand. to yeah, saw yeah. wood, I sawed it that way. I got to know different types of saw blades. I got to know, um, you know, you don't use nails in wood unless it's a real temporary thing. So I used to screw everything together then finally. I'd make things for my mother, a thing for the kitchen, and <laughs> just for fun. And so I loved to build stuff. And then I went to Pratt. Now, first I went to St. Lawrence University because I knew I wanted to go to Pratt because we had two relatives that went there. Uh, my uncle's son, who went there for architecture to Pratt, and uh, after he graduated in 1938, he received, I've got a picture of him shaking Eleanor Roosevelt's hand. He won a national award for his design for something. I don't know what it was. And then my other uh, cousin, the other one, and they, they all lived in Hollis at one point. Hollis, Queens. Hollis, Queens. Just like, right. our, you know, Run DMC? Huh? Run DMC? 
Run DMC. Yeah, Run DMC. It's a famous, famous like one of the first big rap groups. To oh, blow up. really? All his queens. Well, this was. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh God, no. Yeah. Uh, no, they lived there in uh, the 1930s. Okay. Yeah. And they were they were there. And they had a <laughs> they had a you know a house, uh, the standard type house in Queens, you know, with the awning outside and the whole thing. Yeah. In that in that area. There's a famous song called Christmas in Holland's. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, gee. I'll have to send it to you. I, yeah. I'll send you an email. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. No, I know. It was a, it's a big, uh, it was a big music area in Hollis. You know, people came from there. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. But anyway, so he was, um, Uncle George, uh, his son was... Uh, most like my father. He was almost as tall as my father was. And that was Herb Newman. And then uh, his other brother, Henry Newman, had had a daughter who married a guy uh, who was a graphic designer and, and went to Pratt and then set up a well-known advertising agency on Madison Avenue. So I had two relatives that went to Pratt, and I said, I want to be the third one because I want to go there for, I don't know, for graphics, for advertising design, it was called then. Was there also any resistance that this is, you know, this 1950s? Yeah. Like, uh, as far as you being a woman, like, was there ever any uh, doubt uh, inside of you? Because it seemed like you had a lot of uh, confidence to... Yeah. See yourself yeah, there in that were only position. three other industrial designers, but I didn't know I was going for industrial design. I thought I was going for graphics. Okay. So I'm walking down the street after the end of the first year when you had to decide what your major was going to be. And I'm holding a 3D. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Construction abstraction thing. And um, a guy who eventually went to uh, Ford when he graduated and became one of their designers 
uh, we'd sort of gotten to know each other in the in the uh, student union, and and so I'm walking down the street, and he said, Lucia, what are you going to major in? And I said, uh, graphics, uh, advertising design. And he said, uh-uh. I said, what do you mean, uh-uh? He said, no, look at that. He said, you're going to major in industrial design. And I said, no, there's not one woman in industrial design. There are 63 men in that, whole, and there's no women. He said, so what? And I thought, I said, oh, I'll see you later. And I went home and I thought, so what? And so I signed up for industrial design. It's those little things that create your life and you don't realize it. Those little lucky things that happen. But what you have to do is be totally prepared for those things to happen. But Luck is 95% of life. Who your parents were, who you happened to meet, that telephone call you made at the right time, the fact that you broke your leg at that particular time and met somebody in the hospital that eventually gave you a job that gave you this or that. All this stuff is luck. But if you're not totally prepared for it all, then you can't take advantage when luck opens a door. And that's what you always have to remember. So with students, I tell them, no matter what, always say that you can do it. I mean, if they say, can you do graphics? Because I never, I took, well, industrial design had a, had a, had a graphic, I had a 2D uh, thing in foundation year. And that was it. But I did graphics. And when, when uh, Abbott Laboratories or, uh, or um, uh, the restaurant that I was designing the interior for asked if I could do, the <clears throat> do their menu and all, I said, oh, sure. I didn't know how to do graphics. But you, in industrial design, the thing that you do, that thing over there is what taught me visual education so that you end up being able to do anything. Now, it may take you, me, for instance, twice as long to do a graphic thing than somebody like you who has studied graphics. But I'll know what's wrong with it, and I'll try and try and try until it looks right. And when it looks right, I'll know when it's right. I want to touch on mm-hmm. on the fact that you were... Applying as uh, applying to prep as one of the only few females in this program, but how you you kind of found opportunity in adversity. Like I'm a big believer in you could look at as a podcaster, right? If I went to a podcast convention, it'll be me and a bunch of white guys, mm, maybe a couple of white females, mm. maybe one black female, but largely it's going to be white guys. And yeah. you can you can look at it from a standpoint of Ugh, Ugh. I don't really fit in yeah. in this environment. It's not really my scene. Or you can look at it as, oh, all eyes are on me. I'm going to shine. Did you have that same type of feeling as well? A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Because I ran for president of the class. Yeah, didn't make it, but ran for it. You know who got it? Who got it? The one black guy. 
<laughs> Tom Rock. And Tom Rock. Hey, you never forgot him. Yeah, never forgot him. No, we were good friends. Yeah. No, he was he was great. But he always, uh, poor Tom, he always, he was a little bit like my husband, too. Because Lou, Lou's parents were Italian. Lou always had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. And Tom did, too. And, but it was, it was a, a negative thing. And I think with and with Lou, my husband, it was also a negative thing. It held him back, and I think that was true with Tom also. It held him back. And and he in both cases, it's they're very parallel, really. You know, I never thought of it that way. That's really interesting, huh? Because now, was, was yeah. there a moment? Um, yeah. Like I, I love sports, and. Uh, as a kid, I used to try out for the middle school basketball team. And I just wanted my shot, you know, yeah. to like show that I can play. You bet. And I remember getting in the games and being like, I'm going to show you. Was there like That's a right. moment in your Pratt career? Because life's all about competition. You're competing against you know, your peers. You're competing. But these guys were so good that you were just glad if you could get to that level. Mm. I mean, you just tried. They came in with such slick stuff, beautifully finished. You wonder, how did they get there? How did they get there? What did they do? And then you try to find out. And everybody was very selfish about how they did things. You know, you'd be able to go into the shop and ask, yeah, but how these guys would bring stuff from home and it would look like that. Uh, you know? <laughs> But they, you know, they'd been in the army for three years and whatever, and they'd been in, on probably on the Normandy beach and all. I mean, when you thought of it, and here they were with these with these little little high school people coming in, and I at least had had two years of college and one year of work, so I was a little bit more there than most of the, than the other half of the class, you know. Because what was the application process like? You send in a portfolio of your work. Okay. You'd send in uh, a, a, a composition, uh, you'd send in uh, drawings, and then you'd send in stuff that they asked you to do. Draw this, draw that, draw that, draw that, uh, answer these questions. Uh, so it was a whole series of things, and then you'd send the pack to Pratt. So now I want to get into you, you, your career in leaving Pratt, and now you're getting into the professional world. You know, how'd you get your first job? What was your first job? What was that experience like? Luck. Luck. A guy by the name of Monty Levin, who was well known in the hardware industry and in uh, kitchen stuff and hardware and television sets and, you know, really um, gutsy stuff. So uh, Monty Levin called Pratt and said, I need something, preferably, he didn't say this at the time, but I think he said it to the operator at Pratt. They wanted, I think he wanted a female. So when I went over, I took a portfolio, and he said, oh, that's great. And there were only two other people in the office besides Bonnie. It was a small office. <clears throat> and uh, I saw what he did, and they did television sets and... Uh, 
also wood television, you know, because they had to look like a, a, a piece of furniture at that time because it was so deep. You'd have to put them against the wall, you know. Um, so I said, okay. Um, and then I noticed that the telephone was on my desk. And then I knew why he probably hired me because I could do the work, but also he'd have a female voice answering the phone. So after two weeks, after he knew that I could do all the drawings and that I had a sense of design and whatever, because he didn't have as good a sense of design and we used to complain about it all the time. Um, and so I said, uh, well, I think everybody can answer the phone, right? Why not move it over there? to a table so whoever's nearest can answer. And by then he knew that I'd probably quit if he said no. So he said yes. <laughs> so, so being a woman probably helped me get my first job because he wanted a woman to answer the phone. Mm. Mm. There's opportunity and adversity. Absolutely. And and also too, this is in the 1950s. So describe like what New York is like at this time too. Uh, you're a lifelong New Yorker, you know. Well, you didn't walk down the street with the camera around your neck. Where, where were you? Where were you living at this time? Brooklyn. Okay, where about in Brooklyn? Uh, right next to Bed Stuy. Okay. You know, right where there was a lot of crime and stuff, and they said don't go walking out late at night. But of course, we did. And, uh, but there wasn't that much crime then. It was starting at probably 52, but it was sort of known as sort of a crime area in a way, but not the way it was in the late 70s and 80s. And 70s yeah. and 80s. No. But uh, my mother always said, just, you know what to do. Just walk fast, know where you're going. Don't look around. Now, my roommate, who moved in with me, and we, we lived in uh, Brownstones. And in my Brownstone, there were 11 women, and we each had, you know, on each floor, uh, the people that owned it. In the Brownstone, 11 women? Yeah. It was, uh, we had one, we had the front room. Okay. And then there was the in-between with the, with the two basins, and then the back room. But, yeah, so the we, back room had two people, and the front room had two people, and oh, we wow. were on the second floor. And then the one below, uh, let's see, that was their floor, the people that owned it. Uh, and then they had the basement. And then the next floor, there was two people and two people. And then the top floor, there was two people and two people. And then there was the end room that a single person had which was that end room at the end of the brownstone that faced the street. Because that, and, the, and the, the opposite end was the bathroom. So those are the two, and that's the way it, brownstones were con, always constructed that way, with two rooms, and then the single room, and the bathroom, and the stairs going up. Okay. So... But I have a very elementary elementary school question because yeah. you know, in the world of podcasting, I like to approach things as if my listener knows nothing about um, about what we're talking about, right? What is industrial design? Three-dimensional education of vision. Thinking about form, negative space, positive space, which is form, and the relationship 
you put this all together, whether you're doing it in an interior with furniture, whether you're doing it uh, with a phone, positive images, mm -hmm. with finishes, materials, um, and form. You know, you're just putting it all together, but you're educating your vision before all that so that it's it's a unified composition. When I was, uh, I went to school uh, for art history mm. and uh, for, in high school. Mm. And they first sat us down in a class called Perspectives where you learned about art because how they structured it was there was art, uh, history, but then you would learn the history of that civil. There'll be a civilization recovering as a unit, as a team. Right. So it'll be Egypt, and it'll be Egyptian uh, art. All the aspects of it and yes. how it comes together as a culture. Yes, and they would first say, "Well, art is always subjective. So how do you uh, how do you determine what is good art?" And they would say things like, uh, "One example is form and function, right? Where well, that's not art." Because art, but does but does industrial design have to be functional? Design has to be functional. There we go. There we go. But it has to work, and it has to be beautiful, or else why do we exist? Designers don't exist unless it has to be beautiful. Engineers can make it functional, but you have to know how the forms come together. Now. You have to understand who you're designing for. Just as if you're writing a story, you have to know, or you have to know who your audience is. We have to know when we've got a project, what is the audience? Who are they? Why are we doing this? You have to have a clear indication of why you're doing what. And then with all this information, after you've researched it really well, you know, for instance, just take a handle. Different people in different parts of the world hold things differently. And if we're a global society, when you're a manufacturer, you want to know where to push the buttons because different people push buttons differently. And you can stumble and design the most beautiful thing in the world and if that button isn't right for Japan, they're not going to buy it. Wow. And that happened. It's just amazing. It brought everything to me as a designer when I heard the story of this guy who was designing for a Texas instrument. And they were exporting to an Asian country, and he had designed this plate, and I can't exact. I wish I had written it all down because it was so interesting, and I thought, oh, I'll remember that, but of course I didn't know I was going to live to be 91 plus, <laughs> so, but he told me about this story, and I said, I don't believe it. He said, absolutely, the people would not use their use the handle and, and the off button that way in this country in Asia. They would hold it this way. And they said, no, there could be an accident because they wouldn't know how to push the button off that way. 
And I was just amazed. They said we had to redesign the whole thing. And he was one of the people on the design group and learned so much from that. So when you're designing today, you have to do some deep research. Like the other end of that is how do you end up designing something that you've seen over and over again? Before you were born, practically, this thing was designed. And it changed a little bit, a little bit, and a little bit, and a little bit. And then suddenly, you go through school, and you see it. And then you get out, and then you're asked to redesign it. When you redesign, you don't want to start from the point of view of what it's been all its life. Somebody wants you to redesign the idea how are you going to do that? Well, maybe you start from the point of view of the function of it. And you ask, you know, how is it functioning? How is it used? What is it surrounded by? <laughs> what does it smell like? You know, what does it listen like? What is it? I mean, you try to approach it from a bunch of different points of view. And one of those points of view is abstraction. If you take something that you're used to seeing and you say, I'm cutting myself off from the visual. I only want to know what it's supposed to do. Who is using it? Where is it being used? What is it being used for? How is it being used? What is its environment? You know, all those things. And if you can't add to any of that, don't think about form. Then you bring all that to the table. Okay. And then you start thinking in terms of how is it handled and by whom? Or where is it going to be? Or all these other things are impinging on your idea. You don't have a form yet. You can't start with form. But if you're thinking abstractly, then you start putting all this together and you think, well, if you're going to hold it that way, how would that be? You would not end up with a phone that was like this. You, would, you have to, of course, include what is pushing it. I mean, what's making it work. So the function area gets to be very important, too. But the whole idea of Pratt's approach to industrial design is starting with three-dimensional abstraction. That's the most important course. And that was what Costello and, and his wife, who was a sculptor, brought to Pratt. When Boudreau, who was there when I was there, um, and not too long after, because by that time it was pretty old, but Charlie Pratt also, who was the grandson of the founder, who was there when I was there. And this is, you know, how many years ago? 80 years ago? No, 70-some years ago. But Pratt is 120-some years old. But in the beginning, Costello was the one who brought in industrial designers. Costello came from, uh, from uh, Carnegie Mellon. And at that time, it wasn't known as Carnegie Mellon. It was 
either Carnegie or Mellon, I can't, Carnegie Institute, I guess it was. He had been teaching there. And his wife, Rowena Reed Costello, had gone, had been a sculptor and had been from Pennsylvania. And her father was a doctor and she had a, this terrific education and she went to Europe and she started getting involved with sculpture and with people there and brought back this approach. And the two of them put together this approach to visual education that no other school had because there was no industrial design except for what's his name, who did the, you know, um, Raymond Lowy. And Raymond Lowy uh, was a household word at the time because he had a lot of press and it was a new idea. So in the 40s and in the 50s, and you can look up Raymond Lowy and see all that he designed. He had a staff. He didn't do it himself. He was a stage designer, but he had come from that sort of area, from not art, but on the edge of art, you know, theater design and all, and developed uh, an office. And then somebody who graduated two years before I did eventually took over his office when he died. <clears throat> I, wanted to, I wanted to ask about, um, it's very difficult for, you know, I write songs. It's very difficult for a songwriter to hop from country, to go from R&B, and to go from mm. rap, right? It's very, it's a different skill set uh, that you're using. You're working with different types of people. From There's a different right. lingo that I'm using in a right. country song than I'm using in a rap oh, song. Sure, it does different mean the same to melodies. Yeah. Uh, how is it that in your career, you've gone from industrial design to graphic design, you've kind of touched on a lot of different areas. You know, how did the opportunity come for you to, because you're working in industrial design, how did the opportunity from Dunkin' Donuts come about? Oh, that was years later. And, yeah. And did you, was Dunkin' Donuts at this time a brand that people like know, like you know sort today? Sort of, they sort of knew it. It was, it was just a, a simple place like, uh, like a donut place, but they had gone national. And so every place had a Dunkin' Donuts. And, um, so they came to Sangre de Mirtha. Now, after Lou died, it was, Lou had been, had been um, skating with our daughter, and she was seven. And they had been over at the Walman Rink, and they came back on Saturday. And I had some stuff to do, so I didn't go. And also, I'm a lousy skater. My ankles are not good for skating. Uh, and Lou said, I got this pain in my back. I don't know what it is. So that evening, he still had it. I said, we're going to go across the street. He went over to NYU Medical Center. They took his blood. They did this. They did that. They said, you're, you're fine. Uh, they didn't know that the dead cells on a heart problem don't show up until two days later. They didn't know that in 1970. So he came back and we came back and he was fine. You know, he said, I've still got this pain. Sunday morning, he said, it's still there. And I said, well, we called up and they said, no, everything is fine. The blood report was fine. Yeah, it takes two days. So that night, 
he said, well, I'm going to go see the doctor. I'm going to call him in the morning and go see my doctor. Uh, so I'll be home a little bit late. Okay. He said, I, I have a four, four o'clock appointment. Okay. Because he had called up. Okay. I'm at a freelance job. And phone rings and... Um, uh, I I take the call and they say, Lucia Duresmanis, yes. Uh, your husband just died in the doctor's office. What? He was never sick a day in his life. And here I am sitting in a freelance job and I, I can't conceive of this. He died? How is that possible? So I ran from Irving Place on 13th Street all the way across town to First Avenue where uh, it was called New York Lying In Hospital, but it became uh, the one on 19th Street. It became... Uh, Beth not, Israel? Beth Israel, yeah. And I ran and... Uh, the uh, because Lou had changed uh, Edward had been had closed his office because he was old and Lou had been gone had gone with an architect and this architect and his wife were there and they said he they didn't know what to say he had collapsed uh, at the doctor's office she had gone to the doctor's office with him because he felt a little bit woozy. And she said, well, let me walk over, because it was just a couple of blocks away, or else she wouldn't have been with me. And then he was in the office, and in the doctor's office, and she said I was going to leave, and they came out, and they said, Lou DeResman has just died. And then they called me. And my whole life changed, and I just... I didn't know what I was going to do. The place that I was doing freelance for was Bob Minner's. And he said, uh, after the, because I had gone down, or he knew what had happened. And he said, Lucia, if you want to come here for four days a week, we could use you. And oh, thank God, you know. So I recovered and worked there for four days a week and then made other contacts. And then at one point, Bob was going to close the office because he had sort of had it up to here, and he was very wealthy. And he said, um, but I've got some contacts for you. So one of them was somebody that I had known there who'd been a salesman and then he'd gone off on his own. So I had a contact there and then I did some freelance and then I sort of made contact with, uh, who was that guy's name? I forget that guy's name. Because uh, do you have a, a lot of times I ask folks yeah. about things they've worked on in their life yeah. and their, their work symbolizes you know, a symbol of what it may mean to someone else. It means something personally to them. Uh, it's a little bit deeper based on where they were in their life. Yeah. You know, like during the time that your your husband passed, do these works that you were working on freelance kind of bring back memories of, you know, 
good times or bad times? Or I'll tell you something. Is there, is there like an emotional connection with you? When you have something that you do well, when something, when, when sadness hits or a big change in your life, that becomes your religion. That becomes your hook. And I threw myself into that work to the point where I would be working on stuff at 10 o'clock at night and on a freelance job at at an office. And a lot of these offices stay open till 10. In those days, people used to put a lot of time in that they never got paid for, especially in the industrial design, especially being a woman. And um, so you, you get so involved in the work that all your grief is poured into that. So your, your life becomes your work. And this is what happens to men, and that's why men end up dying earlier. Because Taking their, notes. <laughs> their life is their work. Their home life is separate. Yeah, but their life is their work. I had no home life. My daughter would bring her work over to the office and be doing it when she was like 10 and 11. And then she'd say, Mommy, you know, it's, it's late. I have to get up tomorrow. I said, okay, we'll leave. And then, and then we'd come home. And then I, I also had a board set up here on the, at the other end uh, because that panel that's there, I had it was moved in so that I had room behind for all my stuff. And I would work on a freelance basis there, but then I would go to an office. And then my contacts were starting to develop. And then I went to Sangren and Mirtha, and that's where I did the Channel 7 News set. And uh, that's where they had Dunkin' Donut. Russ Sangren had gone to Pratt. And he knew that I had been at Pratt. And he called me and said, Lucia, we've got some interior stuff to do. Do you do interiors? And I said, of course. You always say yes. So he said, uh, Dunkin' Donut wants a new layout for uh, an off-the-street off store. Uh, they want a counter, and they want some nice stuff inside. They want to redesign the, the donut area and all. I said, okay. So I went over, and I was there. Like a, I was at George Nelson's for 10 years, and I was at, uh, and then when, when this happened at Sangre de Mirtha, I was there for nine years. So it started off you doing the industrial, but the, the, the interior of the store? I'm I'm setting up and I built the I built the uh, I build the model and I design it and I've got shots, you know, I've got a lot of shots if you want to see my work. I've got oodles I love, of, I love to. Oodles of three dimensional, I mean of of uh, slides uh, on computer. Uh, yeah, so I built the model, I designed the interior, it and I redesigned their their donut I did cross sections and and how it would be made because by that time I could I could do that I mean that was simple stuff <clears throat> then I designed I thought why not design a wall 
paper or something. So I went into the graphics department, and they were doing doing the uh, a new logo. And I said, they had stuff pinned up. And I looked, and it was so dull. And I said, was this stuff, is this new? Yeah, yeah, this is new. And look, it's, it's, it's like coffee. It's like toast in the morning. I can remember this one guy was saying, it's like toast in the morning and coffee and all. And it was, uh, yeah, it was brown and black and white and tan and what? I said, no. I said, donuts are fun. And I was jumping up and down. I said, donuts are fun. I said, make it my daughter's colors. I said, take that hot dog lettering on that one, which they had in black and or something. I don't know. I, I, I wish I had taken a shot of it. It would have been great. But I never, I wouldn't think of that because I didn't carry a camera with me and you didn't have phones then. You know, this was back in 1975. And so I said, take the hot dog lettering and, and make this orange and this pink. They said, what? I said, yeah. And I went to the Pantone thing and I picked out the orange and pink that vibrated next to each other. Because you know, when two things are the same value, but strong color, they vibrate when they're next to each other. So I took them in and said, here. And they said, oh, no. And I said, please, just do it. And I said, oh, all right. And I said to, to Russ Sangren, I said, I, I, I suggested something. He said, fine, fine, let him do it, let him do it. And I went back and I said, yeah, Russ said, let them do it. So I said, please, the hot dog lettering, okay, like this. And then I traced it out and I said, here, this is, Duncan, this is orange and this is pink. Okay, and here are the colors. And they said, all right. <laughs> they said, but you're an industrial designer. What do you know about graphics? I said, oh. <laughs> so that was like on Thursday. Then Friday, they finished up everything. Friday, I finished uh, the whole thing. And I, I didn't have anything on the walls because I thought, if they pick that, I'll do... I'll do a tan, two values of tan, and just very subtle on that with that hot dog lettering as a wallpaper on the interior. And then I designed a a uh, a donut fixture. It was just round, you know, sort of round. And they actually built it, but they didn't build it round because it would have cost too much. I said, we lost the whole idea. <laughs> so in section, it has to be like this, like a donut. Ah! <laughs> so, so then, uh, then we, uh, so then that was, you know, Friday they finished and they, they went out there. And then Monday morning, I just couldn't wait over the weekend. I thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice? But I thought, no, this is ridiculous because <laughs> they're going to play down that color. They're going to say, no, you don't want to go that direction. I went in and, and I passed uh, uh, Russ Sangren's office and he was on the phone and he said, like, go ask them. I went in and everybody was, <laughs> he said, so what happened? And they said, uh, they they picked yours. <laughs> ah! I said, I called that. Oh, I can't believe it. 
I can't believe it. <laughs> and so ever since then, you hit 1975, you've seen that stupid ass Dunkin' Donut. <laughs> It gives everybody a heart attack, right? Because the stuff is so poorly. <laughs> so that that's the story of Dunkin' Donuts. You know, how does it feel to see something that you've made be so uh, recognizable? Like I, I just ignored it for years. And, you know, you'd see it here and there, and I'd say, oh, yeah, you know. And Lucia, Lucia would say, they're my colors. They're my colors. Because... That was the point. Every birthday party I had for her, she wanted pink and orange. And I used to cut out little little people, you know, fold them and then, then cut out little people and put it around here and have, uh, I have a big table of pink and orange napkins and everything and pink and orange balloons for all her birthday parties. So to me, it was just, that's Lucia's colors and I just ignored it and then all of a sudden people started talking at Pratt oh you designed it I said well yeah I did all this other stuff I did clocks for George I was with George Nelson you know for 10 years or yeah but you did the Dunkin Dunk no I did the, the lighting fixtures you know the, those nice Nesson lighting fixtures yeah I did no but you did the oh <laughs> Are you comfortable with, with that? Are you comfortable with that? I'm comfortable with life. Yeah. I have been very fortunate. Very fortunate. Even though my father died at 50 when I was 14. My husband died at 50. when We had all been married 13 years and my daughter was seven. You have something that you do well. When something, when, when sadness hits or a big change in your life, that becomes your religion. I haven't been hit by cars. I'm white. What if I had been black? What have, I often think, what if my life, somehow, if I had been black, where would I be today? With the same... No, that couldn't have happened. And with the, no, that couldn't have happened. No, that couldn't have happened. And that, oh, God. No, it couldn't have been. You know, you, you, you try to transport yourself. This skin gives you a, a I don't know, it, it, it's, it, it's so awful in this country that skin type makes such a difference to your entire life. You can't transport yourself. And, and everybody, everybody, and I, 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 everybody, and people would say, no, you're wrong. Everybody has a prejudice. They can't help it. When you're born with white skin, you can't help but have prejudices built into you somehow you don't even know it there was a conversation i was having with you don't friend. even know it uh it was a, a very simple but deep point where he was saying that anytime 
uh, that you can identify with something, right? So if you identify with being a woman or me being a man or you being white or me being black, that is the origin, the beginnings of prejudice. You know what I mean? It's almost like if I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, um, a Washington Redskins football fan, I instantly, but now by me just saying I'm a Washington Redskins football fan, I have a dislike for the other teams. There's a, there's a degree to how much I, hatred I show, right? Yeah. But there's we never... Don't even, a, you don't even know that there's anything. Yes. You don't even know it. And you can't imagine. But when you start thinking, what if you had been born black and in... And you see, it, it you can't even imagine it because then we wouldn't have been living where we were. It was... It was in the 20s. You know, I mean, it, it's just, to me, it's just so amazing. And if anybody says anything about you don't have prejudices, well, then you were never born. Mm. Mm. <laughs> you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You don't even know it. I mean, these, these people, but finally, some people, this president that we've got has brought out all these prejudices and they're not even thinking about where they come from. You know, it's just, it's frightening. Because we're living in a diverse environment. Yeah. We can acknowledge, oh, I know what you're going through. I've seen it myself. You're my friend. We're, we're having interactions back and forth. But you never can know what somebody who's black is going through if you're white. <laughs> You can never understand that. If you can support and you can give feeling to and you can you can say, you know, I, I, I hate myself for looking at someone and thinking of them as, as a color. You know, just try looking at someone and not seeing color. It's so tough. But let's say if I have, yeah. uh, I may not have the knowledge of being a woman, right? But I do have a care for Lucia. Well, yeah, and I care. I care for every person that doesn't have a white skin. I care for them. But that sometimes, and the bulk of America, there's a lack of caring about oh, as oh, me being, oh God, as yes. me caring about not knowing a woman's issue, I know. but I know Lucia. And so I care about the woman's yeah. issue because I know Lucia. There's also yeah. just a discrepancy uh, or lack of diversity throughout yeah. the country. Yeah. So a lot of folks just don't get to develop that care. Oh, they never develop Because that. they don't, they're yeah, not they exposed. Don't, they're not exposed to it. I yeah. can remember that. See, I look back, knowing Tom Rock at the time when I did at Pratt, I didn't know that he was one of the, the flyers. And he never let anybody know that. What do you mean by flyers? What's you know, the, the the group that were all black that flew. Oh, the Tuskegee Airmen, the, the Red Tails. Yeah. Didn't know that. So, I so he was there on the GI Bill as well? Yes. Got it. And he was in my class, and we became good friends, you know? He's like a national hero. And he once <laughs> said to he once said to me, I wonder what it would be if things were different. And I knew what he meant how we could have been even closer if things were different then, if he hadn't been black. And, but he didn't want to take the jump 
to sort of going out on a real date. He didn't want to take that jump. And I didn't want to qu take it either quite, though we were good friends. Well, on a date with each other? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, got it, got it. Oh, so yeah. you had a crush on Tom. Well, not a real crush, but a, a, a real... I had never been that friendly with anyone with a different color skin. And, and he was such a lovely person, but he, he was so aware of his blackness because he was surrounded by whites all the time. Mm. He was the, practically, and that's what burns me up. There are no black students at Pratt in industrial design. Why? And mm. I want to know why. Well, you know we don't look at color when we go through. I've been on the committee that looks through graduates even. And we don't look at what the color is of anybody. The reason why I started this show, right, is because, uh, well, one is because uh, I love art and I love pop culture. Yeah. I love the world that we live in and the culture that we live in. Yeah. But another thing is, uh, in, as, a, as a black man, right, my role models were how I got into rap first was because that was a symbol of success for me, uh -huh. right? And yeah. I, I don't come from the hood either. I come from like the middle, like lower middle class background. Yeah. Um, so my, my situation wasn't even as desperate uh, as certain other people as of my race. Some other people that have really got either the gang in the hood or get out or hooked to something. Yes. And, and so for me, that was a symbol yeah. of success. So industrial design is a world that uh, you are in this world of industrial design because you grew up with a father who introduced you to that world, right? It goes back to the question earlier that we well, are all products. Yeah, he, he didn't introduce me to it. He was just making things. I mean, that's... Yeah. But industrial design, I didn't even hardly know what it was until I went to Pratt. But it's, it, it's an introductory... It, it, it set the stage like for you to get to that point. Like for me, like my father wasn't around. And so when I yeah. see, when I see success, yeah. Yeah. I just see it through rappers. Yeah. I see it through yeah. basketball players. I see it. That's right. how we get out, right? We get out through this. So uh, even with the, you know, why this show is on a deeper level important to me, because it's not about viewership or making money, but it's to show yeah. people that, Things are just deeper, right? You don't have to be a basketball player, but you could be the general manager. You could be right. the coach. You could be right. the team doctor. Right. Um, and I think that's what, as a community, I hope that we can expand on. It's just going a little bit deeper than it's not, art is just, and you would ask the average person, what is art? Even for me, I'm learning as you're showing me your light fixture. And I'm like, whoa, I didn't even think about the light and the materials and how this is all See, that's not art. That's industrial design, which is a combination of function and art put together. Yeah. So that it looks beautiful, but it functions well because it's it's a it's not the product of um, industrial design is the service industry that provides better looking, functionally good functional objects that tries to make life better for people. But that's what I tell students. It's a service industry. 
don't get your head blown up that you're an artist. No. You're making something for somebody else to sell. First of all, they want to make money with what you do. And secondly, it damn well better be serviceable to the people that use it. Or what good are you? Look, you know? if, if you're not in the business of people, things are destined to fail, right? Yeah. It, it goes back to... You'd be surprised how many people get blown up, though, and they think that everything they do is beautiful, and therefore, you know, it'll be successful. Because Right, because at the end of the day, you have to have... Uh, <laughs> I, I look at the iPhone, right? I, I love the iPhone. We were just speaking earlier about I think it's one of the top inventions of my generation, Right, things something that when it when it came out just changed my world. But technically. Technically. But I I can see now that Apple, especially after uh Steve Jobs has passed away, it yeah. doesn't seem to be a service that is changing the lives of people. See, he was a he was a, a nut about every detail. He was a nut about how shiny the edge should be so it doesn't interfere with your with what you're looking at, you know? Those little things are what he was a nut about. Yeah, it's always like that, which drives me crazy. And a different form or whatever, you know, would be better. But then how does it fit in your pocket? Well, that's an industrial design problem. Mm. How do you get away from this and yet have it serviceable, fit into a wallet, fit into a whatever? I mean... There hasn't been maybe enough studies of how it's being used today because people are living with this thing. Is this the best form? Not for me. I hate that form. I want it to be something else. How are you going to design something you've seen over and over and over and over again? One question I tend to ask folks uh, on the show is a common thread between every person that I've interviewed. There's a what? There's a common thread. Uh-huh. Between every person that I've interviewed. Okay. And that's a threat of greatness. Uh, everyone is always active, searching, um, and achieving greatness in their craft. Uh, and, and it's something that uh, is timeless. Well, I don't think greatness is the right word. I think satisfaction is the word mm. that I would use. Mm. I don't look for greatness because that's what kills everything. People want to be great. It's always I, me. You know, mm. and today it's especially that way. I think it's the satisfaction, the feel of completeness that you search for. But what have you, what have you sacrificed uh, for that feeling of, of you completion? You don't sacrifice. You work hard, but you're used to working hard to achieve. Mm. And that's what you achieve. So yeah. have you felt like you've lost, uh, like sometimes... Uh, there's times you can't go out to hang out with your girlfriends and drink wine. Or there might be times where, you know, you may have missed a, a graduation or you may have missed uh, a special moment in, in your family uh, for work. Do you feel like you, that you've lost any of that in the pursuit uh, of your passion? Nothing. Hmm. Nothing. Because I lost my husband at an early age. And as I said before... When grief comes, what do you hang your, what do you, what do you hook into? And because I loved what I did, which you should always be doing, 
that's what I hooked into. So my life was my daughter and, of course, my mother and industrial design. What has gotten you well, to this point in your, in your career, your life? Learn to do something that's needed in this world. Learn to do it very well. Learn to do it the best that you can. And then even the best isn't good enough. And hang on to that. Because sooner or later, someplace in your life, you're going to need that. And you're going to be competitive. And you want to win. So if I hadn't been good enough to do all I did, when my husband died, I would have been down the drain. But because I had prepared, because it was the thing in my life that was so strong, I wanted to do it, I was willing to, to, to work late at night and to learn from other people and to, to just strive to do the best because I knew what the best was like. You have to know what the best is, first of all. And then you try to better that if you can. Then you're going to be needed in this world. And when you need to do something to keep yourself going, that's what you're going to turn to. Mm. But learn to do the thing that you love. Because if you're not doing something you love, you're never going to, not going to do it well. You're never going to do it well. well. Lucia, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a joy. And it I has wish, been a joy. I wish you all the luck in the world and everybody listening to you, too. Lucky <laughs> lucky them. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you so much to the Silent Giants behind this episode of the Silent Giants podcast. This episode has been mixed by Mark Bird of MBM Studios, located in Astoria, Queens. NYC's number one recording studio for music, podcasting, and other audio recordings. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at MBM Studios NYC. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge, signing off till next time. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.